Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Chapter 11, Quidditch. As they entered November, the weather turned very cold. The mountains around the school became icy gray and the lake like chilled steel. Every morning, the ground was covered in frost. Hagrid could be seen from the upstairs windows, defrosting broomsticks on the Quidditch field. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, before we get started, we just have one quick announcement, which is that the great and good John Green has agreed to do a book event with me because he's nice. And so we are going to be doing like a mashup of our two books. He, in his book, The Anthropocene Reviewed, rates things on a five-star scale. And so we are going to be rating Jane Eyre on a five-star scale. Friday, August 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern. And you can get tickets at NotSorryWorks.com and by clicking on events. Wouldn't it be funny if I was like, can you rate my book on a five-star scale? And then just sat there and watched him do it. That would be so fun. It would just be the most boring review ever. Five stars. Excellent. You'll laugh. You'll cry. It would be a very short live event. Matt, it's your turn to tell a story through the theme of likability. What have you got for us today? So when I graduated from college, I was immediately 
entered into the United States Navy. I went to college on an ROTC scholarship. And so I, I joined the Navy and went to Japan and became an officer on a cruiser out of Yokosuka, Japan. And one of the things that happens when you go through ROTC is you enter the military as an officer, which means you're in charge of people and in charge of things. And I was in charge of people. I had 40 sailors who worked for me. I was 22 years old, did not understand what I was doing or myself or the Navy. And yet I had 40 sailors for whom I was responsible. And it was my job to like direct them and guide them and train them and discipline them, all things I was not qualified to do. And so, you know, I had friends and colleagues and some senior folks in my division who would kind of help me learn the ropes of leadership and so forth. And they really wanted me to be tougher. They wanted me to be tougher on my sailors. And so we had one sailor who kept falling asleep on watch, which is not something you're supposed to do. When you're on watch, that means you're the person in charge of some equipment or watching something basically you know the ship runs all night even when people are sleeping so you need to pay attention to things and if you have fallen asleep you're probably not paying good attention and this one sailor kept falling asleep on watch and my chief and one of my fellow officers one of my friends they were like you got to get mad at him you got to yell at him you have to stop worrying about how much he likes you and you have to just put the fear of god into him a little bit because you have the authority you're the officer you can punish him you can make his life more difficult these are serious mistakes he's making. You need to get mad at him. And so we were in port. Uh, I think it was in Singapore, but I can't remember. We were in port someplace. And it was kind of funny because my chief and this fellow officer were like, they were saying, okay, so the sailor is going to be out on the pier because he's on duty and you need to go out there and you should say things like this. Because yelling at people does not come supernaturally to me in that context. And so they're like, here's how you should do it. And here's what you should do. So I, I strolled down the onto the pier and I went up to the sailor and I gave him a stern talking to. And I walked back up to the ship and my chief and, and the other friend of mine were there and they're like, oh, pretty good. We could see you wagging your finger and shaking your head and you looked kind of mad. But I didn't feel like it was effective. You know, I felt like I was play acting this the whole time. And even though my colleagues who were in leadership thought that that was the right thing to do and that I did an okay job, the sailor kept falling asleep. And it didn't matter really who yelled at him or how much. It just... It wasn't the right solution. And so one of the things I want to wonder about is as we look at this chapter and as we talk about likability is I want to ask, what's the relationship between likability and respect? In order to be respected, do you have to be unlikable in some of the things you do? Do you have to do things that people don't like? Or are there other ways of reaching people? And can likability, can earning people's affection be a way to gain respect so they trust you and care about your opinion more? And so you don't need to to yell or whatever. And it, it's a live question for me. I'm a person who likes to be liked, but I also know that sometimes, you know, you have to do the right thing, not the likable thing. And and I wonder where one draws that line. It's a really good question. And I have the answer. So let's keep talking and I'll tell it to you. Good. But first we should recap the chapter in 30 seconds. Yes. I think we should do that first. I'll count you in. Please. Okay. Great. Three, two, one, go. So Harry is very excited to play Quidditch. Some people are really optimistic. Other people aren't. And it's supposed to be a secret that he's even on the team, but it's not. Um, he is really excited to be friends with Hermione because she lent him this book, Quidditch Through the Ages. And she's already helping with the homework and pretending not to. And Snape is like, you're not allowed that book outside of the grounds of school. And so he takes the book. And Harry is like, I want to go ask for the book back. And he notices that ha that Snape's leg is is beaten up. And then at the game, he, he Harry loses control of the broom. Wow, that was 30 seconds. I really got to everything. <laughs> I did an A-plus job. I'll go through the beginning fast, I think. Maybe this is this is the real test of our teamship? Teamwork. 
mm-hmm. of our teamwork because teamship. <laughs> of our teamship. This is a test of our teamship because usually I boot the 30 second recap and you very gracefully and graciously come in and hit all the points, right? Now we have to see. With apologies, you kind of booted the recap this time. Yeah, no, no apologies. Am I skilled enough to actually do that? Because I think I'm still going to panic and also not get everything. So will we be a team where I can come in and pick up the loose ends? We'll see. It'll be a great test for us. I feel like being a team is about intention. Like even if you mess it up, you were, you're going to be trying to like make me look better. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But that's, that's teamship, not teamwork. Okay, okay. Wanting to be a team is the teamship. When it actually works, that's teamwork. <laughs> okay, on your mark, go team. Get set, go. So Harry is learning uh, Quidditch, and he's practicing a lot, and uh, it's hard. And then he's in the courtyard with Hermione and Ron, and Snape comes by, and he's limping, and he takes the book. And then he says, I want the book back. So he goes back to get the book, and Filch is in there, and Snape's wounded, and he says, get out, Potter. And then they go to breakfast, and then uh, Seamus isn't helpful. And then they go to the game, and he uh, he gets knocked by off by Marcus Flint. And then he actually almost gets really knocked off by Snape. But is it Snape? Oh, maybe it's Quirrell because Hermione knocks off Quirrell and they say it's Snape. And, and Hagrid says, rubbish. It can't be Snape. Also, Harry catches the snitch. Oh, Harry catches the in snitch. In his mouth. Yes. So consequential later on. I think this is a good moment to dive into the conversation about likability because I understand why Harry is like a divisive person as far as likability. He seems like the kind of person who you would super like if he was on your team and in a very valid way, dislike if he wasn't on your team. Like there's something about him that's just so lucky that he happens to fly right by McGonagall's window. So she happens to see that he's talented and then get a Nimbus 2000, and then happens to fall on top of the snitch. Like, someone being this lucky is annoying. But because he's on our team, I'm like, yeah, he's so scrappy. He keeps doing it. I mean, there's got to be a first-year Hufflepuff who's been playing Quidditch with her siblings since she was a child who's just like, I am better than Harry. I would have seen that snitch and not fallen off my broom almost and, like, not caught it like a caveman in my mouth. Yeah, I could see that. I hadn't thought of that before because I just thought that everyone liked Harry until later in the series, right? When rumors start. But you're right. I bet like, especially in the other houses, ironically, like it makes Snape's cruelty almost like understandable if Snape were an 11-year-old child. Sort of like, what makes you so special? How come everyone gives everything to you? It's a privilege enough to be at the school and to be studying here. We don't need to give you all these special favors in addition. But all these other lucky things fall into Harry's lap. But I think that that speaks to likability from a distance. When you like or dislike someone who you don't really know, who you're sort of watching across campus, that is really a projection of you, right? My best friend, Kim, is shy. And I can't tell you how many people have told me that she's snobby. And I'm like, she's not snobby. She's shy. They are reading their own insecurities onto her, right? They are saying she is sitting there thinking bad things about me. And she's not. <laughs> like, you're just projecting your self-loathing onto her. And I think that that's often true. So Harry is this, like, cipher of fame. And if you know him, you know he's, if you're sitting at the table with him in the Great Hall in the morning, you know he's so nervous he can't eat. And that he's, like, reading and rereading this book about Quidditch just to prepare himself. But if you don't know him, it just, like, looks like he showed up, got a broom, and catches a snitch in his mouth. Yeah, and that, I think there's that line right at the beginning of the chapter, which says that Harry didn't know which was worse. People telling him he'd be brilliant or people telling him they'd be running around beneath him. 
And what's consistent across those things is that it's uninformed, right? That people are making judgments about him without actually knowing him. It's one thing to be judged as unlikable when you know someone really well. Totally. Right? And then you deal with that problem. But to just to have these opinions formed without any information or with any familiarity with him, that's the thing that's unsettling him in addition to everything else that's unsettling him. It's so interesting because I find that so true in my own life. When I find out that someone who doesn't know me doesn't like me, it hurts me so much. And I don't know why. I don't know that person. And I know that they don't know me. So like, who cares what they think? But if someone I know doesn't like me and I know why they don't like me and I'm not ashamed of how I acted, I'm like, that's fine. Especially with former students, right? I like busted apart that this kid threw during finals and he was clearly disrupting other kids sleep and he didn't like me and I'm like I don't care (laughs) like I know you don't like that about me and like I think I did the right thing and I was very respectful about doing it and I feel like being disliked by people who know you for reasons that you understand is so much easier. Before you gave that example about breaking up a party in a dorm Which is kind of resonant of the story I gave earlier, right? There's something about when you're in charge of somebody or you have responsibility for someone that brings in the second, the second element of like respect or maybe or authority because I'm in charge. Like sometimes I'm going to do some things that you don't like and we both understand that. And so it's okay because I was going to actually say the opposite. Like I think when you started your sentence saying when people don't know you and don't like you, that bothers you. But the, when they do know you and don't like you, it doesn't bother you. I feel like for me, it's the reverse. Like when people don't know me and don't like me, then I'm like, well, whatever. They don't know me. Like, I don't, I don't know them. Who cares? Right. But if someone knows me and they don't like me, I'm like, well, why don't they like me? What, <laughs> what's, what's wrong with me? And I'm assuming like peers, I'm assuming like colleagues or peers or whatever. Like, well, I, what did I do? I didn't, I, should I do something to let them know that, I, right. That I'm not unlikable. It goes to a different place for me, at least out of the context of like me having some authority over that person. That's so interesting because my answer to you, and maybe this is the difference between you and I, and you're just more mature. My answer to you would be like, well, then those people don't know you (laughs) because I'm like to know you is obviously to like you. (laughs) I guess that is what I think. I think to know someone is to care at least a little bit about them. There are people who I don't like, like they're not to my taste. I find them agitating. And because I find them agitating, I don't really get to know them or I get to know them anyway. And I come to care about them, even though they sort of rub me the wrong way. I guess I just really think with very few exceptions to really know someone if they're being a little vulnerable with you is to vaguely at least like them. And I think that we can see that to some extent with Hermione. The boys have definitely started to care about Hermione, and now they're finding things to like about her. The fact that she's so bookish actually proves to be something to their advantage. They're like, oh, I'm so glad that we're friends with Hermione. Like everything that they found annoying about her is now an asset to them now that she has come into their community of care. And I guess I just think that it's with very few exceptions that someone comes into your community of care and you keep disliking them. I like this too, this example of Hermione also, because I think it helps maybe start to clarify the distinction between liking and caring a little bit more or just start to show where that boundary is. One of the things that worried me about this chapter when Harry talks about Hermione going over their their notes and their homework was like, it seemed kind of transactional, right? And maybe liking is transactional. Like, I like something. This does something for me. It gives me pleasure or happiness or stuff or whatever. Like, I like that you share your notes with me or that you read over my notes or whatever, right? 
which isn't the same as care. Like care shouldn't depend upon you doing stuff for me. If I care about you, I care about you. I don't like what you give me because I care about you. I just care about you, right? And that maybe is where where the distinction lies. I think what you're really wisely and rightly pointing towards is that people are good. And even people we find irritating have gifts. And if we spend the time caring for them, there will be something that we discover we like probably at some point. On balance, you may not like, right? There may be more irritating or aggravating things just because of personal taste or whatever that that makes the person on balance unlikable. But you will find things to like because humans are creatures with gifts to share if you offer care. They care about Hermione because of what happened last chapter. They like that that she helps them with their homework, right? And that's that is different. Mindy Kaling has this great story about when she went to middle school, she was having a hard time making friends. And so she brought M&Ms to school and essentially started bribing people with M&Ms to be nice to her. And a middle school teacher was like, Mindy, you are enough. You don't need M&Ms in order to get people to like you. And she was like, but they sure help. And I like don't totally disagree with 12-year-old Mindy. I think that these things are iterative. Like someone take some of your M&Ms and then chats with you for a minute and you're like, oh yeah, the peanut ones are better. And then you bond over peanut. Like I want 12 year old Mindy Kaling to like believe that she is enough. And and I want Hermione to believe that she is enough and that she doesn't need to look over the boys' homework. And I also think that sometimes some transactions right at the beginning of a relationship like help create that intimacy. I think that if it goes on too long, it's just transactional, right? Like if someone is only nice to you for the M&Ms or for the homework help, then there's a point at which you have to cut that off. But I don't know. I'm like, yeah, bring M&Ms. Yeah. I mean, not to throw another term into our word cloud, right? But like when you begin a relationship, a friendship or any kind of relationship, most relationships that you begin with another person, they're initiated by some kind of likability. I like this about that person. At some point, you have to move over into something else where it's not transactional in order for the for you to really start loving and caring for the other person. There's like a transactional likability hook that grabs you into the other person, right? And that is the thing that makes you pay attention to them for long enough that if that thing goes away, it doesn't matter anymore because you're not in it for what you like. You're in it for the person, in it for them, right? And so there's a way in which, you know, maybe Mindy Kaling's M&Ms are just a different version of I'm good at Quidditch or Fred and George are, are funny and outlandish. And those are the things that attract us to those characters, attract us to them. But if it's the only thing that, that we enjoy in them, then that becomes just a transactional liking situation. At some point, it shifts over into even if you lose those gifts, even if tomorrow Hermione becomes a squib or Harry falls off the broom and can't play Quidditch again, are we at the stage where we still care about them, even though the thing we liked is gone? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, pros is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. We have to talk about looks and likability to me because Marcus Flint gets described as looking like he is quote unquote half troll. And we know that Harry doesn't think trolls are attractive because he met a troll recently and he was described as disgusting. And Marcus Flint, it turns out is a jerk, but Harry's first impression is that he doesn't like Marcus Flint because he looks like a troll. And I'm wondering what you think that that says about, like, attractiveness and likability. Well, I mean, I think that's pretty straightforward. One of the problems that we see in these books is that physical appearance corresponds to moral standing. And so Snape has greasy hair, right? Right. And Umbridge uh, looks like a toad. These are not meant to be complimentary descriptions of appearance, right? And it also speaks to me that the fact that once you find someone likable, likability begets likability, right? Like mm. you like Hagrid and then the fact that he's quote unquote too big to be allowed or has a bushy beard become endearing things about him rather than frightening things or unattractive right. things. And, you know, same with Hermione and her bushy hair, right? Like you start to love her bushy hair and love in the fourth book that she refuses to straighten it. And yep. it's just interesting that we do initially conflate likability and attractiveness or attractiveness and morality like you're saying and and we get over it so quickly so i wonder why we hold on to it like how have we not learned that like within 30 seconds of talking to someone you sort of stop seeing what they look like and yet we still walk around with these judgments all the time Vanessa, I think that points back to the thing we were saying before about like at what point does the hook of likability move over into the attention of care as you've been saying through our entire conversation as soon as you give attention to a person then you start to care about the person for who they are not for whatever attracts you to them right and that's again where likability kind of shifts over into care and so i don't think it's i don't think we need to ask like why do we keep doing it as if 
we could avoid doing it. That's just what it means to be in relationship to other people. I think that maybe a different question would be to ask, okay, how do we make sure that that's not the only thing? That we give a 30 seconds to someone, even if we don't have that initial attraction for whatever reason, in the confidence that we will arrive at something like care if we're willing to to offer that attention. I used to work for an organization that trained really successful teachers to be principals, which we can talk about the efficacy of that at another time. Why you would take good teachers out of a classroom is obviously confusing, but I would have to attend these training sessions for these like best teachers in America. And there would be about 100 teachers there every summer. And an instructor said, now there is someone in this room who you already don't like, even though you haven't spoken to them. That is the person who you have to get to know, because if you don't like them, that is your weakness. And I remember looking at the woman who I had decided I didn't like and being like, I have to get to know her. And of course, by the end of the summer, she was fabulous, right? Like she was just awesome. And it was just so funny to have a room full of people. And you could tell everyone is sort of looking around shamefaced, like, yeah, I already do just like someone in this room who I haven't spoken to. It also like created this odd dynamic for the whole summer because you were like, is this person talking to me now? Because I was the (laughs) person who just (laughs) left. I thought you were going to say the trainer was like, okay, now go talk to that person right now. Right. And like 20 people (laughs) came up to me and I was like, oh my God. (laughs) No, he didn't do that. He was like, you all will be spending whatever it was, eight weeks together. Make sure you get to know this person because you actually probably have a lot to learn from them. I just like think it's so interesting what attracts you to someone and what also like repels you or like initially makes you be like, well, I'm not going to like you at all. And like sometimes we're right. Sometimes you get to know them and you're like, oh, I don't like you. (laughs) I was completely correct. And other times we're just so wrong. And the reason we just like the person was entirely about ourselves. Yeah, but I think also like preserving that distinction or like observing that transition from like to care helps us figure out how to care for people we don't like. Like, just be like, oh, it's okay that I don't like them. I can still care about them, right? And so, like, like the person that in that room who you don't like, you get to know them, and maybe you still don't like them, but like you were saying, you figure out a way to care about them or care about what they care about or value their their being in the world, even if you don't want to hang around with them. And, like, Snape is the great example of this, right? Because you don't like him, and then it turns out he's not a bad guy, and then it turns out that maybe he is a bad guy, right? Like, there's this flip-flop. Yeah, I think that's right. But I also, I mean, it's one of the reasons I like this book best is because I don't like the way the Snape character develops throughout the series. Because I like the idea of a teacher who is too strict and not very likable and maybe resentful of Harry even if that's super immature, but who actually is operating always in the best interest, not only of the school, but of Harry, because that can teach us a lesson about like likability and, and character judgment. He's not likable. Snape is not likable at any point in this book. We learn that actually at every step, he was trying to protect folks. He was trying to take care of folks. So like likability and whether you're a good person or not become separable, right? I mean, except to Neville, right? Like, he's just abusive. Yeah, you're right. He is cruel to Neville. But I right. but no, I, I, think your overall point still stands, right? They don't like Snape, so they think it's him messing with the broom, even though the man messing with the broom is two feet away. But they find Quirrell likable enough. Which is where the likability becomes a distraction. Right. Right. That's, that's right. So you're right. There are things that are justifiably unlikable in, in Snape, like the way he treats Neville. But that 
dislikability, if that's a word, causes them to misread him and form an incorrect judgment about him. Or maybe not an incorrect judgment, but just the wrong judgment. Like they could judge him as unlikable and even judge him as cruel towards Neville, but it distracts them from the thing they should be paying attention to, which is Quirrell. Oh, totally. I'm always distracted by <laughs> by likability and dislikability. And this is the thing. I think it's okay to be distracted, but we have to cultivate attention, <laughs> right? Of course we're distracted. How could you not be distracted? That's the nature of perceiving things in the world. It, but we have to cultivate attention. So, Vanessa, can we return to my story about this relationship between likability and respect and authority and all these things that we've been talking about? I'm thinking about the pre-match talk that Oliver Wood gives, which I think is profoundly unsuccessful as <laughs> as sports psychology and as motivation. Like, you know, he's like, or else, right? You're going to do well. We're going to win or else, which is like classic, you know, American football sort of you're going to win because otherwise you'll be punished. Right. And that it's motivating my fear. Right. Oliver makes himself unlikable because he thinks being unlikable is what will be necessary to motivate this team to do well. But then Fred and George like do the perfect thing, which is like joke about Oliver's speech. And it just gets everybody kind of light and relaxed and calms them down. Instead of raising anxiety, it lessens it so they can be more in the moment, so they can compete and perform more naturally and successfully. Like it's just Fred and George are not likable just because they're funny, smart Alex. They're likable because they use their irreverence in a way that actually helps people. They're not peeves. They're not irritating people just to irritate them. They make it light when they can intuit that people need it to be lighter so they can get on with the work they need to do. And that's that's likability, but it's not the same kind of authoritarianism. It's the opposite, in fact. Uh, I love that point. The The twins are just... Even from such a young age, they are like political and savvy with their humor. We know that later in the books, they're going to leave in book five in this like hugely spectacular and political way. And then they're going to start this shop that like really keeps alive in people the hope that even though Voldemort is rising, that there are still things to be joyful about. We absolutely see that even here. And the thing I would say to Oliver Wood is like, you don't have to yell. They will love and respect you and be scared of disappointing you. I mean, it's why the killer thing that we all tease our parents about is that I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. If your mom is yelling at you, you get to be like, oh, mom. But if she's disappointed, you're like, oh, no, I like and respect and love you. And I don't want you to be disappointed. And so actually the way to manipulate people to control them is to be likable, is my point. (laughs) I mean, it makes me think about my story again. I think the problem was not that I yelled enough or didn't yell enough. It's that I was new and didn't know anything and they didn't respect me yet. Of course they didn't because I didn't know anything. And the theory of these other folks was that if you yell, then they'll have to respect you because people respect a yeller. And that's what Oliver Wood thinks in this moment, I think. But I think the truer thing is that if they respect you, it kind of doesn't matter whether whether you yell or not. Sometimes you yell, sometimes you won't. Hopefully you don't. It's more about whether there is respect already. And likability is a red herring. So, Matt, we're now going to do florilegium, which is a Christian practice. 
Um, Stephanie Paulsell taught us this practice. And the way that we do it is that you and I will each pick a sentence from the text that sparkled up at us. We will describe where it was in the text and then why we picked it. And then we'll put the two quotes in conversation with each other and see how it changes our perception of the text. So Matt, which quote did you pick? Uh, My sentence comes from the very beginning of the chapter when Harry, Ron, and Hermione get caught with the blue flame in the courtyard by Snape. Three of them were out in the freezing courtyard during break, and she had conjured them up a bright blue fire, which could be carried around in a jam jar. There was something very vivid about this, like the description of it, but also about like the use of the phrase jam jar made the magic, which is astonishing. Like who can conjure a blue flame? It just seemed intimate and warm and inviting and it just opened up that that moment for me of the three of them, new friends, gathered around like this piece of impossible magic, which they can hold in a jam jar. There's just like this juxtaposition between the humble and the sublime, which is really fascinating. Well, I picked a very different vibe sentence, which is Snape saying, how are you supposed to keep your eyes on all three heads at once? And I think that the reason that I like it is, one, we're hearing Snape sort of like state a displeasure with Dumbledore. He's like, this is a bad plan. This dog is unwieldy and shouldn't be in the castle. It just seems to me like this is a moment where Snape is correct. Like, this is ridiculous that teachers are having to, like, risk injuring themselves and that this dangerous animal is inside the school. And I also think that we think of Snape as, like, hyper-competent. And so there's something interesting and, like, new about seeing him brought low. Snape is, like, going to be written as this almost superhuman guy. But, like, he's brought low by this dog in a way that's interesting to me. Well, let's put these two sentences together. I'll read mine first and then yours. How are you supposed to keep your eyes on all three heads at once? The three of them were out in the freezing courtyard during break, and she had conjured for them a bright blue fire, which could be carried around in a jam jar. That's amazing together. That's, that is amazing together. That's amazing together. It's so good. I mean, right? It's like Snape feels this way about this dog, but he also feels this way about the trio of like, how am I supposed to keep my eyes on all three of them at once? But also, like, they, you know, it's not Harry who saves the world. It's a collection. It's the group of them. These three, but also a larger group, right? And so, like, part of what gives the strength to this protectiveness is that it's many-headed. It's formidable because it's it's multiple. Yeah. One of my favorite moments in a Western, or just, like, an early movie that I saw that sort of, like, changed my understanding of, like, what it would mean to be part of a community is there's, like, a bad guy with a gun, and, like, there are a hundred people without a gun. And, like, one of the good guys comes up to him and he's like, look, you can shoot me. You can shoot six other people. But, like, there's still 93 of us. Like, we will overtake you. So, like, you might as well not shoot the six of us. But just, like, this assumption of, like, look, like, there are a lot of us. And I feel like that is the victory of Harry versus Voldemort, right? Like, as soon as you cut off Nagini's head, like, that's it. He's done. Whereas, like, they're just more and more and more. And yeah, Snape is somehow between those two. And I feel like these two sentences next to each other show that. He's like the guy in the crowd who's like, oh, yeah, I, I guess I'm willing to die. Am I? Right? Like he's the confused guy in the crowd. Okay, Vanessa, I'm going to read our sentences in the opposite order. The three of them were out in the freezing courtyard during break, and she had conjured for them a bright blue fire, which could be carried around in a jam jar. 
How are you supposed to keep your eyes on all three heads at once? It's interesting that the like the obvious like match of the first pairing didn't come across as much in the second. I thought that it would just be the same reading, but actually it's there's something else that's going on here. It's not as clear there. Yeah, it seems to me, just in listening, that the three of them are around this and then they start having the conversation. Like this is something one of the three of them says of how are you supposed to keep your eyes on all three heads at once? And what's interesting to me about that is that Snape and the kids are having the same conversation, right? Like the kids are like, what is the dog guarding? Like they are wondering things about the three-headed dog and Snape is wondering things about the three-headed dog. And again, it's just like they're on the same team and they don't know it. That's really good. I like that a lot. I think that's right. I mean, the the mystery here or the the poignant thing on this reading is that they are on the same team and they don't know it, which makes me want to ask about them or about ourselves is how do you build alliances with people you dislike? How do you make allies out of those who you don't find likable? Because you have to build alliances, right? And even though they are working together and things work out at the end of this book, okay, on both sides, they're constrained because they do not like each other. They're not seeing each other and not seeing that they're working together. And that makes it harder than it needs to be. Yeah, they're okay. But like Ron gets injured and traumatic things happen. They wouldn't have necessarily had to happen. I just want to say that the fault of this falls on Snape's non-11-year-old feet. (laughs) Yep. Yes. True. For multiple reasons. For, like, the abuse of power. For the fact that he is a grown-up. For the fact that it's, like, so blatantly biased. This is on Snape. The kids have zero to none on the culpability scale. Fair. That's that's right. You're right. Matt, thank you so much for doing this practice with me. It It was so fun. Thanks for leading us in it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Our voicemail this week comes from Lauren. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and Ariana. My name is Lauren, and I'm calling from London. I've been listening to your podcast for several months now, and it's honestly become such a joyful part of my life, so thank you for that. I'm still catching up, but I felt moved to send this voicemail after listening to your live episode for the final chapter of Order of the Phoenix. 
yeah, that's how far behind I am. So forgive me if this has already been addressed in future episodes. During the Pardes at the Remes phase, the word you were tracing throughout the seven books was beaming. And I was practically shouting at my phone, Hermione, Hermione, as she's a character who beams a lot, sometimes at her friends and sometimes out of a more general sense of pride and accomplishment. However, there's one instance in particular that I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on. In Deathly Hallows chapter eight, at the wedding, at the moment of Bill and Fleur's marriage being pronounced, quote, Hermione turned around and beamed at Harry. Her eyes too were full of tears. And then the officiant says, then I declare you bonded for life. This moment has always struck me as very complicated, given that she's sat next to Ron, but turning to look at Harry. And we can infer that Harry is choosing to focus on Hermione rather than on Ginny, who is up at the altar as a bridesmaid. I'm interested to know what you make of this, and I'm really looking forward to listening to the episode on this chapter now. Thanks for being my favorite podcast. Lauren, thank you so much for that voicemail. And we do not address this in that episode. So I want to apologize that we didn't address that great point. I mean, part of it to me is about the fact that when you're quote unquote just friends with someone, especially at the beginning of romantic stuff, like the friendship is definitely more likely to last forever than like the beginning of a relationship. And so they look at each other and are like, yeah, we're going to last forever. Whereas like Ron and Hermione might not and Ginny and Harry are broken up, right? So to me, it speaks to the beauty of, of friendship. But Matt, what do you make of it? So I think that's all true, Vanessa, but there also just is, is an intimacy between Hermione and Harry, which is their own, right? Which doesn't need to connote or require like romance, but which is built from lots of moments of care and vulnerability and intimacy, which is just true and genuine and there. And that's, yeah. So everything that you said, Vanessa, I think is right. And I think the, and Lauren's voicemail is super observant and again, helps us open up what's going on and also the depth of friendship and also the kind of uncertainty of, of new romance at the same time. Any moment that is just the two of them in the books is just so sweet. I, I really love their friendship. It's now time for us to remember the friends and family of our community who were lost due to COVID. Steve Ratcliffe, who is 74, a husband, father, grandfather, and fisherman. Barney Mitchell, who is 81 and had the patience of a saint. Judy Cobbs, who is 89 and a stand-in mother for Atlanta's LGBTQ community. Tyler Johnson, who is 36, a barista, a friend, an amazing human. Michael Shreveport, also known as Michelle McCausland, who is 61 and a trailblazing drag queen and Michael Vaughn, who's 57, a veteran and a foundation of the LGBTQ community and a photographer. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Matt, who would you like to bless this week? Vanessa, I would like to bless Neville this week because there's this moment when Neville is crying into Hagrid's coat and i think in the text these moments are played a little bit for comedy or even if not for comedy we're meant to read neville neville as weak or bumbling or 
too childish for Hogwarts or something. And we just don't know him well enough as, as we've been speaking about in our conversation, like we haven't paid enough attention to him because actually as we get to know Neville better, we know like the sort of trauma that he's lived through. He knows as well as anyone except maybe Harry, the power of dark magic. And that moment of fear is one that once we learn more about him, makes him more endearing rather than appear to be weaker or unsuited for Hogwarts, right? And so I want to bless him just because I don't know him well enough yet the first time I read this book, and I'm glad I get to know him better later. Yeah, of course he's traumatized by this. He's been thrown off a pier and out of a window, right? right? Like, Jesus. <laughs> Um, I want to bless Hagrid as like sort of, it's a completely selfish blessing because I want it as a reminder to myself. I'm going to bless Hagrid for the fact that he is watching the Quidditch game from the hut and is having a fine time. Like he's watching it on his own and can see everything. And then he's like, but there's nothing like being in a crowd. And he like gets up and goes. And as an introvert who's like trying to get momentum to leave the house again after COVID, I think that this is a great reminder for me that things are better in a crowd and like being around other people is good. And so I want to bless Hagrid for being that reminder who he can totally watch his Quidditch game at home, but he's like, nope, it's going to be better in a crowd. And so he goes. Matt, next week we're reading chapter 12, The Mirror of Erised. What do you think our theme should be? You know, there are a couple of themes that are still lingering from this conversation, but one thing I've been thinking about a lot for the last couple of days, for whatever reason, is wisdom. And I, I think I want to reflect more on wisdom. So we're going to leave these other terms aside until they arise again later. And let's talk about the mirror of Erised and wisdom next week. Oh, my God. I have so many stories about moments where I was wise. I'm so excited. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find listeners who are discussing episodes in the Facebook common room. You can also join our local groups and come join the community of people who are supporting us on Patreon. 2,000 people strong. You can leave us a review on iTunes. Please compliment Matt. He's the best. And send us a voicemail with a blessing. We are Not Sorry Production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We're edited by Juliana Bradley. And our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. And we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week go to Lauren, who sent in her wonderful voicemail about beaming. To Molly Baxter, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and all those in our community who send in the names of their loved ones lost to COVID. in the review i used to love the podcast with casper and his amazing enchanting voice and now matt potts is on five stars for casper one star with matt potts (laughs) that was the title it was five stars for casper one for matt potts the magic is gone from harry potter that was the (laughs) that was the review because of me from all of harry potter